Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Ganesh Sitaraman, author of the new book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Uh, Ganesh, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the new book. So why is flying miserable? I think it comes down to two words, public policy. We make policy choices as a country about really everything, whether children's toys are safe, the water or the air is clean or polluted, and even more complicated things, whether banks are safe places to keep your money, whether rural places have electricity. These are all about policy. And the things that are miserable about flying are also about public policy. And, and the biggest policy decision that happened in the airline industry, the one that really shapes everything, was deregulation. Yeah, as you uh, show in the book, actually, you break it down into the last hundred years, essentially into three broad periods that, you know, historically, we've had these different approaches. Initially, it was subsidies. Then it was regulated capitalism built on that understanding that transportation had a tendency to monopolies or, or at least oligopolies. And so instead, the government, as you say, treated them as public utilities, then deregulation under the Carter administration, followed on by the Reagan administration. What were the, the, the crucial differences between those? And I suppose in some ways, even more importantly, what are the strengths and weaknesses of those three different approaches? Well, to simplify a little bit, and let, let's put aside the early years of subsidies, you know, from the Wright brothers, where the post office was, you know, a real part of how the airline industry uh, just got started. But if we put that aside, um, you know, there were really two big approaches to thinking about this industry. And the first one dominated, as you said, from the 1930s to the 1970s, and the second um, from the 70s onward. And I think the fundamental difference in the two approaches was whether you think all businesses are the same or some are different. And there was a set of people for hundreds and hundreds of years who thought there are a set of businesses where the basic structure and economics of the business mean that we should not expect competition to work very well. And that means there's high capital costs, there's economies of scale, there's network effects, all of which are you know fancy economistic ways of saying that bigger is better. And that what's going to happen in the process is you're going to end up with a monopoly or oligopoly. And so Congress in the 1930s observed that airlines were one of these industries. They were not like a restaurant or a retailer. Uh, they had very different dynamics. And as a result, they thought that they should apply a kind of public utility model, as you mentioned, to the industry. And they wanted stable, reliable service across all of America, which is, you know, a humongous country. And that approach meant creating a federal regulator called the Civil Aeronautics Board, and the CAB, as it was known, would allocate routes to specific airlines. So it'd give an airline a route like New York to Washington, um, but it would also then give the airline some routes that are not going to be so busy like that one, like maybe Seattle to someplace in Alaska. And that allowed the airline to balance out uh, internally some profitable routes, some less profitable routes. And also, at the same time, insured service throughout the whole country. The cab also regulated prices to make sure that there were affordable rates balanced across the whole country. And the way they did that changed over the years, ultimately landing in a kind of place where they charged based on the mileage. If you were flying longer, you'd pay more. If you're flying shorter, you'd pay less. 
And then the last thing that they tried to do is they tried to maintain a system of regulated competition, a kind of Goldilocks between too much competition in which the airlines would go under or need subsidies and too little competition in which they become monopolies and exploit everybody. And, and that was the system. And it, and it worked pretty well during that period. More and more people were flying. Prices were consistently going down. Um, there were big innovations in technology from propeller planes to jets, uh, from jets to wide-bodied jets. And by the 70s, you had this crazy, eye-popping competition over service. You know, piano bars and airplanes, steak dinners, free alcohol. And that was because prices were regulated. The airlines had to compete to make service better. And that's how they would differentiate themselves. And, and so that was one approach. And, and in the 70s, we just got a totally different approach. People said, you know, this is a bad system. We should actually let markets work. This is a business like any other. Competition will work great. And if we just let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, charge whatever they want, um, we'll have a lot better system. And people predicted things like 200 competitive airlines would operate under deregulation. They really thought there wouldn't be many downsides to that system. And, and it was a good pitch. And so Congress bought that pitch in 1978 and deregulated the industry. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's also about culture too, isn't it? That, that during that, that regulated period, um, it, it really was, a, if, if not a luxury experience, it was certainly something, not something that ordinary people did all the time. So that one of the aspects of deregulation was that it was to some degree democratizing that many people flew for the first time. Maybe the experience wasn't as swish as in that golden age of flight, um, but that's because it wasn't for the elite anymore. It was more like catching a bus than, than the old idea of flying. Yeah, one of the things that's hard to, to work through when you think about the history of public policy generally is, you know, what would have happened if some intervention didn't happen? So what would have happened if there wasn't deregulation? And, you know, we really don't know. And it's very hard to, to predict because any number of other changes could have happened along the way. Maybe this is a good topic for the next TV show if you're watching, you know, uh, for all mankind, you know, what happens if the Soviets landed first on the moon kind of a story. You know, th this would be another one of those one of those things to explore. But what one challenge, I think, with the story of deregulation being the thing that democratized airlines is that it's not clear if that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, part of what happened during the period in regulation was you had more people flying over that time. You had prices going down over that time there were huge improvements in safety. You know, I think we forget that in the 1950s, this is a pretty new technology still. I mean, it's 50 years old, but people flying safely, long distances high up in the air, that was still pretty new. The Wright brothers in 1903 only went for 12 seconds. It wasn't very long of a flight. And in the 1950s, you still have plane crashes and planes are crashing into each other in the air in that time. I mean, that is a serious safety thing that we don't think much about, you know, because of the improvements in safety in the industry. So if you think about a deterrent to flying, you know, that's a big one. Um, the invention of jet technology, transformative for the industry, including for safety and speed and a whole bunch of other things too. So, you know, it's not clear how those shifts would have, would have uh, shaken out. Um, in part because we don't know what policymakers would have done if you didn't have full, complete legislative deregulation, maybe you'd have gotten some other policy changes. It's kind of interesting that that what if aspect. I mean, the, the book is primarily about uh, the American airline uh, industry. 
But there is that other example of Europe as well, that they follow on from the American model. And then, you know, the, the example, I guess, would be Tony Ryan's startup, Ryanair, um, a low-cost carrier, which is now, I mean, literally in the week that we're speaking, has become the biggest airline uh, in the world by market capitalization. So, you know, that there is an example of where deregulation worked, isn't it? Well, I think one thing, that, again, that's hard about this is how do you disentangle the different, you know, examples and when do you look? And that's one of the things I found was interesting in the book. You know, if you measured deregulation in, in you know, 1982 or 83, you would have said, wow, this is really successful because right after deregulation, there's a ton of new entrants. There's airlines like New York Air and People Express. They have no frills, just peanuts kind of service, no fancy meals, really cheap prices. You know, but they also don't have unionized workforces. They're not flying to Alaska. They're flying to the, you know, uh, uh, more high volume, high profit routes. And so you might say, hey, this was a pretty successful thing. But I don't know about you, but I haven't taken New York Air or People Express. Um, and, and the reason why I haven't taken them is they don't exist anymore. And they don't exist because by the end of the 1980s, there were dozens of mergers and bankruptcies. And we actually got much more consolidation in the industry and, and not competition. And, you know, you, to some extent, to your point about Ryanair, one of the features of this industry is that scale matters a lot. And it's more efficient for airlines to be big. And people like bigger airlines. They like bigger airlines because if you have 10 flights a day between two cities, that's better than flying an airline that only has one flight a day. The airline's delayed. If there's a cancellation, you know, there's always another flight. Um, so people want that. And you actually want an airline that has a bigger network because it means you can fly to more places from your hometown. It also means that you don't have to connect through a different airline to get to where you're trying to go and switch carriers. So that can be easier, too. So bigger is, is better in, in a lot of ways for consumers. It's better for the airline, too, because it means that they can have a lot more efficiency. And so they concentrate their operations in hubs and want to buy up other airlines. Now, the challenge with this is we might think that that means, you know, deregulation is successful in a different way. It's more efficient. But there's also a lot of downsides to a system with deep concentration and large size airlines that aren't regulated which is that, you know, if you're in a rural place that loses service or a small city that loses service, you might not be able to fly at all. If you're in a place that only has one airline serving you, you're going to have higher prices because they're a monopoly. Um, you might face worse service. And what are you supposed to do? Walk, you know, drive across the country. Um, if there's only one airline serving you, you know, higher prices, smaller seats, all those downsides that people like to complain about are things you can't get out of. And so I think there's a place where when we think about deregulation, we have to ask also what have been the costs, which may not be about efficiency or prices or scale of the industry, but might be other kinds of costs to communities, to consumers in terms of service, um, to workers. And those are things that we also have to have on the ledger as well. Yeah, and it's it's one aspect uh, of the book, and uh, and actually because of the very collegial way in which you're discussing it here on the podcast, listeners may not uh, kind of quite get this initially. But there's an anger about this book, it seems to me, that comes through quite clearly about the fact that there are fewer flights, that there are fewer routes, that there are increasingly higher prices, and that this comes particularly in a period after effectively a bailout during. Uh, the pandemic, a big public uh, rescue. And this sense that, 
you know, I, I think that you have that in some ways the big four airlines, which dominate in the United States now, have not really paid back that sense of the public coming to their rescue or the, the state coming to their rescue. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not angry. I think my view is that for a very long time, we have just accepted that the flying experience keeps getting worse little by little in all these different ways. And that I think a lot of people think there's nothing they can do about it and feel powerless to do anything. And what the book really tries to show is and that's why that's why I start with public policy. What the, what the book ties to show is that the bad things are a function of public policy. And policy is something we have control over. It's something that we can choose and we can choose to do it differently. In fact, the people in the 30s chose to build a system that was regulated. The people in the 70s chose to deregulate the system. We can choose to do things differently, too. We could choose in small ways. We could choose in big ways. I explore different options in the book. Um, but the hope is that it will channel people's frustrations into a sense of feeling like, actually, there is something we can do about this and we don't have to accept it as it is. And, you know, to, to that extent, I, I certainly don't think that the airlines are fully to blame. And that's and again, that's why I talk about this as a policy problem, not an airline problem. You know, one of the most interesting things I found in the book is that the Big airlines were against deregulation, by and large, when it happened in the 1970s. Uh, they liked the regulated system. They thought that was the right system. Presumably because they didn't want the competition. Well, that's what people say. But, you know, they don't have much competition now. And, and now they don't want re-regulation in any way. But, but what's interesting is that if you look at, you know, one, one of the characters in the book is this guy, um, Robert Crandall. I say character, I mean, he's a real person. But but he, he appears in the book in, in, in multiple times. And Crandall was an executive at American during deregulation and, you know, objected to it because he thought this industry was really like a utility. And then as head of American in the 80s and the 90s was one of the most cutthroat and fiercest competitors. Uh, he was engaged in cutting edge innovations that in a lot of ways were anti-competitive and, you know, even got put before the Justice Department for anti-competitive actions uh, at one point. And he was a fierce cutthroat competitor in that period, doing everything he could to make American bigger, uh, pushing back against his unions, giving them B scales so that the employees would have worse benefits um, as new hires. And then after he was done, you know, running American in the 2000s, he pops back up, he gives this big speech where he says, airline deregulation is a failure and we need to go back to thinking about this industry as a public utility because that's how you run a good industry. It just has dynamics that don't work the other way. And so there's something interesting here, too, that I think the industry will work within whatever set of rules the public sets for it. And if we set a set of rules that say, do whatever you want, what we're going to get is smaller seats and fewer meals and lower customer service and other things that make it cheaper for them. And if we say don't do that, they're not going to do it. And, and that's really about public policy again. And it's, it's that choice that we can make and the businesses will operate within those choices that we set. And it's partly about us setting up the guardrails. So if we want places like Dubuque, Iowa and Toledo, Ohio to get air service, which I think they should have air service, that's the thing that we can set up in, in policy and the airlines will do it because, you know, that's what that's the point of living in a democracy. You set up laws, you make policies as a people and we follow them.
And and what about the things that are outside of our control? I mean, one of the reasons why this has been such a difficult period for the airline industry is because of the global pandemic, the war in Ukraine, which has affected the the, the price of oil. You know, uh, who knows whether the current Middle East crisis will have a, a similar effect, inflation, these kind of things, which directly impact in ways probably that you can't model if you're in an industry, you can't predict a global pandemic that will shut down the world. So the great thing, you know, about policy is you can do a lot with it. And and even if you think about some of these crises, you know, the pandemic wasn't the first time the airlines faced a major demand shock that required public support. You know, after September 11th, people didn't fly for a long period of time. Demand dropped significantly. And the airlines went to Congress. Congress gave them a bailout. You know, so we've seen this before. And I think one of the key things that you recognize then when you understand an industry that is dependent on passenger demand, that sometimes that demand drops, is that we may not know what the source will be. Is it a war? Is it a terrorist attack? Is it a pandemic? Is it something else? But you know, there's going to be another time where there'll be a big drop in demand. And so what are the plans for that? So one of the proposals I have in the book is that airlines should have to have crisis management plans. What do they do when there's a huge drop in demand and there isn't, and it's not going to come up for three months, six months, a year? Um, and they could come up with that plan now for how they're going to deal with their operations and how they're going to bounce back successfully. They could have a rainy day fund that says, hey, this is the money we're going to use so we don't have to go to Congress and ask for taxpayer support. You know, those are policies that you could require of airlines because we know this is likely to happen again even if we don't know when, even if we don't know exactly what the mechanism or vector is going to be, um, we can prepare for some of those things in advance. And, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think we should think about doing. Yeah, I, there's, there seems to be very little appetite uh, in politics for uh, working across the aisle. This seems to be one of the issues you suggest where maybe there would be an appetite that there is a, a perhaps some sense of momentum building towards um, kind of an anti antitrust enforcement and so on and this kind of thing. What what impact do you think that might have for uh, airline and what kind of imaginative step forward would it require? Well, I'll give you one specific idea, but but I do think there is an opportunity for potentially bipartisan or cross partisan collaboration in part because there are a lot of people who are frustrated by flying. Republicans, Democrats, people in rural areas, people in cities, people in mid-sized cities, doesn't matter where you live in the country, there's, there's something. And so I think that means there's the possibility of a broad coalition, and it would be quite popular for politicians to take up the charge of reforming airlines. In particular, one area that I think is very promising is the shifts in geography that we've seen, where a lot of small places um, as I mentioned, Dubuque, Iowa, Toledo, Ohio, have lost all major carrier air service. 74 cities since the pandemic have lost some service from one of the big airlines. Um, there are some cities like Cheyenne, Wyoming, which guarantee the revenue of the airline just to fly there once a day. You know, if we, if we value the ability of people to live across this big geography, we might want a policy that allows for that in the same way that we say we're going to have rural electricity. Um, and that's a policy choice. You know, we could say we want transportation because it's really critical to communities. The other thing we've seen in geography is this real shift towards these huge fortress hubs, Atlanta, Dallas, Charlotte, you know, these big airports 
um, where one airline is really dominant. And part of what's happened over time is we've lost medium-sized hubs you know, places like St. Louis and Cincinnati. And that can be devastating for those communities too, to go from having a lot more flights to, to many fewer because people don't want to have big businesses or conventions or conferences in places where it's hard to get to. So I think, you know, thinking differently about the geography of concentration and distribution of where are flights, how concentrated are airports with one airline and how to spread that around um, that actually might be something that people in big cities could get behind, which have these airports because they'd have more competition, which would mean lower prices that people in middle sized cities could get behind because, you know, they'd have more air service and more economic growth. And people in really small places could get behind because in some cases they've lost all service and I think would like that service back. So I think there are real opportunities there that really aren't partisan in any way, but reach people geographically. And hopefully that's a, a step forward that, that we could take. So should there be a national airline strategy that is developed? I mean, some have even suggested that uh, one or two of the airlines should be nationalized. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you think about the public utility model, this idea that bigness is better, obviously the biggest would be there's just one airline. And that would be a kind of nationalize all the airlines just have one carrier. And, you know, that's one approach. There's some downsides, of course, to that approach, which is if you only have one, you're not going to have any competition and maybe it gets sclerotic and not very innovative over time. If it's a private entity, just one, um, maybe it starts charging prices and it's a monopoly that's just, you know, increasing its own profits. So there's some real downsides there. You can imagine two airlines. Australia had a two airline policy for for a while in which they have one public and one private and they competed with each other. And there are some studies that show that when you have that kind of system, the public keeps the private in check on price, the private keeps the public in check on quality, and you get you get pretty good outcomes. But I don't think either of those are really viable in any case in our current uh, politics or in the medium term even. And so, you know, to me, I think the the approach is how do we make more incremental changes that don't rely on something like that, but that move towards solving other problems that we can identify, things like the bailouts, things like geographic access, and issues around how complicated pricing and service has gotten recently too. And so to me, that's where we should be focusing is how do we improve the system by taking a step forward rather than you know, a, a total reimagination. But in the book, I provide and, and talk about those more imaginative ideas for the reason that I think the other problem why we haven't seen much change or action in this area is that there's really been a failure of imagination over the last decades that just said, like, deregulation was good. The market works. There's nothing we should do, nothing we can do. And I want to jolt us out of that, you know, stupor and get us thinking, huh, there's a lot of things we could do. Some totally wild and crazy ones. Maybe those won't work, but when we put those on the table, it actually opens up the space to have a much broader conversation about things we could think about. Is there a sense that that we're just heading in the wrong direction altogether, that we should actually be committing to high-speed rail, not to flying, that it, it serves more places, um, it's more ethical and climate-friendly, it's more democratic in many ways, that word that we used earlier. Frankly, it, it's it's more enjoyable than flying. Maybe that's the the best way to make flying less miserable, take the train. So it's, so it's a really, it's a really good point that one of the things that we need in 
transportation is a transportation policy, not just an airline policy. I mean, we, I think we should have an airline policy too. <laughs> we should have both. But the challenge on the transportation side is it's one thing to just look at each mode, but we also want to consider interactions between them and the allocation between them. You know, as you said, on climate questions, flying, not, not the best from a climate perspective, um, which is an understatement. I talk a little bit about the possibility of electric planes, sustainable aviation fuels also in the book very briefly. Um, but, you know, thinking about how we allocate and think about how people travel is, I think, a really important part of the story. And, you know, the balance of rail versus flying versus driving versus ocean shipping, you know, these are really important questions that, you know, could be thought of in an integral whole, but we need to start thinking about them that way if we want to engage some of those issues. And the way that technology is increasingly going to impact our lives. I mean, we all saw during the pandemic that things that we thought we had to do in person were actually quite possible to do via Zoom and, and so on, which is, is also going to have an impact on how and when we travel. Exactly. And so, you know, kind of finally, when you kind of look forward and, and think about all of these kind of things, whether it's the new technology, whether it's the need for a new strategy for how we travel, how we fly, and, and you project forward, where, where do you think we'll be in 30, 40 years time? I think it's really hard to say. And I think it's hard to say because I think on the trajectory we have been on, um, concentration continues. And the downside to that is there will continue to be, you know, smaller number of airlines with more power, with potentially worse service and higher prices over time. And I think, uh, or at least in some places. Um, and I think one thing that we'll see again is another crisis like COVID, like 9-11, where there's a big shock to demand, where the airlines need support again. That's, I think, the trajectory that we're on. Um, to me, the, the real questions are first, you know, does the Justice Department's current posture and moves to challenge some of these mergers and the transportation depart departments, you know, taking a little bit more of an aggressive stance, uh, like the Southwest fine that we just saw recently, um, does that change things a little bit uh, from that trajectory? I'm not sure, but, you know, we'll see. And then the second thing is, if we do end up in one of these big crises where they come back to Congress, is that the moment where people say, enough is enough. We don't actually want a system like this anymore, where we have these boom and bust cycles where you guys do great in the good years, and then in the bad years, come asking for money from, you know, all the rest of the taxpayers. Maybe we should fix that. And so to me, in 30 or 40 years, I think the question is, do we get to the point where that crisis happens and there are ideas on the table to say, we don't want this to happen ever again? So the book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. It's written by my guest, Ganesh Sitaraman, and published by Columbia Global Reports. Uh, but for now, Ganesh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.